the share of multinationals in the total Chinese economy has actually been declining. Why? Because incredibly successful Chinese companies have emerged in every sector, pretty much. The three years we had of COVID kind of was a factor that made it more difficult for multinationals to really understand what was going on in their industry and which local companies were really coming up. The Chinese companies have used a period of time to make tremendous progress across a range of sectors. From McKinsey and Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Frank Ledoux, a senior partner in our Hong Kong office. China's economic and business landscape has recently experienced significant changes. And today, Frank and my other guests will discuss some of those shifts and how multinationals can adapt their strategies to succeed in China. They'll be building on insights they shared in a McKinsey Global Institute report released earlier this year. And we'll include a link to that report in the show notes if you'd like to read more. We're fortunate to have with us today three seasoned China experts who are seeing these shifts on the ground every day. Frank is a leader of our life sciences practice in Asia and serves both multinational and Chinese clients. Frank, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Sean. Looking forward to the discussion. I am too. Also with us is Joe Nye, a senior partner in Hong Kong. Joe's also the managing partner of our Greater China offices, and he brings deep knowledge of China's financial institutions and markets. Joe, it's great to have you here today. Great to be here, Sean. And also joining Frank and Joe is Juna Shi, a partner in our Shanghai office and the co-lead of our Greater China consumer and retail practice. Juna also leads our Greater China private equity and principal investors practice. Juna, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here today, Sean. Looking forward to it. Well, let's get us started. Joe, you've titled your report, the China imperative for multinational companies. Given some of the economic shifts we're seeing in China, how, if at all, is the imperative for China to remain high on companies' agendas changing? Thanks, Sean. So I think the China topic has been around for a while. And I think that for the longest time, this has all been around growth, right? This has been one of the fastest growing, 18% of global GDP. And if you are a serious consumer or B2B market or you know anywhere that has a global market, right? China would be on your agenda. So China's always been something where we love the upside. However, we call it the China imperative for multinationals because why? The next decade, it will be very important to maintain the upside while managing the increasingly complex risk. We all know the upside, the growth, the, the income, um, of, of more Chinese cities are going to be you know, more affluent. Um, the innovation, I think China right now is not only you know, purely a copier, it's also a lot of innovation going on in China. And in many ways, it's also the hub of Asia. At the same time, we all know that there are many, many increasingly complex risks. That includes geopolitics, that includes demographics. I think aging is certainly one topic that is uh, very much top of mind. Financial risk, right? There is a debt that is piling up in China right now at a historic high. And obviously, climate change and sustainability, right? Which is an evergreen topic, especially in emerging markets like China. Multinationals have started to reappraise their relationship with China. I think I've never heard so much being discussed, especially this year. And in top of everyone's mind, it is around, you know, what is China's role in my growth going forward? 
is this still going to be the major growth market? That has been a little bit of a shift around the perceived risk of China and also a little bit around is China going to be the priority for us as multinationals going forward? China for some, um, especially perhaps for some United States-based multinationals, increasingly become a little bit, you know, is it no longer first priority? Maybe it's more second and third priority. So we start discussing that as well. How does that affect the choices of investments and also of kind of how we think about China as a growth market for all of us? Thank you, Joe. Uh, On your point about multinational companies and their shifting priorities on China, could that be at least partly due to the fact that they've already invested heavily in China? Sure. it's It's a really important question. In the past 20 years, really since early 2000, when WTO opened up China, I think most most nationals have had some sort of starting point in China. Some have sunk billions into the country, right? Some has a starting point, some actually has branch offices. So I think it depends a lot on what starting point do you have, right? For many at this stage, the question is, do I double down? Do I retreat? And there are many in the middle. Some are going to be in kind of harvesting mode. Some are going to be in wait and see. But I do think that for most companies, right, they already have a beachhead in China. And the question is, what does the next 10 years look like? Okay. So how are those companies approaching their assessment of whether to go deeper into China or potentially shift priorities? What are some of their key considerations as they make that decision? The first one is around what is the size opportunity? Is this still the same? I remember this January when uh, we were at Davos. The question that I got the most was around, where's the next China? And people ask that question because China has such an incredible run in the last 20 years that everyone is trying to figure out how about they miss the next China. We thought about China, you know, thinking around, you know, if China grew at 2% a year, um, China's GDP growth, over the next 10 years would be the size of India's GDP today, okay? If China grew at 5% per year, in the next 10 years, the growth in the new GDP will become India, Japan, and throw in Indonesia. Size really matters, right? So if you're a global multinational, looking at the market, looking at 18% of global GDP, China represents a third of the growth of the GDP in the next 10 years. And so you cannot ignore China. The second one, the opposite of that one, is around the risk. How do we think about these risks, right? In obviously light of the opportunities, but also a little bit in terms of kind of how do we, how, what was our risk tolerance? The third one, you know, we talk a lot around risk, but we talk a lot around competition as well. We maintain that China is the most fiercely competitive market in the entire world. And so therefore, if you are multinational competing in China, Every day, there is a new competitor out there. So the ground is shifting, and it's shifting because of many things happening internationally, but also many things happening domestically here in China too. And the last one is really around our starting point as a multinational. Where are we? And do we need to reconfigure? Do we need to recalibrate? Do we need to rethink what we can do in terms of China's strategy? So in terms of opportunities, what's different now from a decade ago or even a few years ago And how does that feed into where multinationals should be focusing now? You know, the story in the past 20, 30 years has been around urbanization in China. You know, China went from 20% of population living in cities 
to 65% in 2022, right? So in the last 40 years, you all heard about this, right? All the 500 million people, right? Living out of poverty, going into the middle class, going into urbanization. However, that story is not over yet. Between 65% today and growing to 80% in the next 20 years, China still has a urbanization story to grow. And that gives you the sense of kind of the size and also a little bit of you know the coming growth of China. And that's really the first point. Thanks, Joe. So all that continued growth and urbanization have both economic and environmental implications. How's China handling them and, and what opportunities might that present for multinationals? Look, there's a lot of work to do for China, but for everyone else on sustainability. As you know, China's already announced very bold plans for carbon neutrality you know, in the next 20, 30 years. And I think that it is actually very important to think about this as you know, our entire world needs to catch up right, on actual policies in making this happen. In the last few years, I can tell you that whether it's in things like um, solar, China is now the biggest manufacturer of solar panels, EV, electric vehicles. China is now the largest market right, for EVs, right, and that will lead the world. But at the same time, as one of the biggest transmitters, but also one of the biggest manufacturers, right, of of of, of growth industrialization. I think there's a lot of work to do as well. So I do think that it's a very nuanced story where lots of challenges, um, lots of things to happen. You you mentioned solar and electric vehicles. Is China starting to focus even more on technology development now? And did your research cover that? Yeah, I think that one of the focus that we did was like, you know, what have been mentioned in the last you know, two years of Chinese policy papers. And you can see what is clean energy, what is mobility, what is advanced connectivity, applied AI, so on and so forth. I think these are really top of mind topics. So I do think that China right now is very serious on new technologies. And I do think that China, along with the United States, are probably the two countries that are going to be head to head competitively, right, on, uh, on criminalization, on these new technologies. Joe, the policy papers you refer to, those are where the Chinese government lays out its positions on various topics, right? So how do those papers correlate with what companies actually end up investing in? Look, China being a very, um, I would say, policy-oriented uh, economy, I think that if you were a Chinese investor, you look at these and you're like, well, you know, that gives me a little bit my, you know, <laughs> my top priorities on where to invest, right? I know what's going to happen here. You know, if you are a multinational investor, then you think a little bit around, well, as an industrial investor, like, what do I bring to the table, right? And in some of these, I think that there could be some pretty interesting ones, right? If I think about mobility. So I do think that it really depends a lot on what your position is. But if you're a Chinese investor, this is your list of where you're looking forward to growth, for sure. One thing that I wonder is, given this push on technology, is China becoming a bigger competitor in some areas where it hadn't been before? For example, enterprise technology, are you seeing more Chinese tech companies going international, expanding abroad? I would say that China in the past has not been a big exporter of technology, but in the last few years, there has been a couple of areas, right? In, in telecommunications, right? In some areas right, of the internet, in some areas of internet applications. I think they really use a lot of Chinese technology in the supply chain, right, to actually make a lot of kind of made-to-order um, fashion and design. And so I, I do think that there are some pretty interesting examples of Chinese innovation 
um, and Chinese you know, supply chain efficiency uh, and, uh, and in some ways marketing that has actually been exported to the rest of the world. Juno, would you like to add anything to this? Yeah, indeed. I think uh, comparing to the past, uh, one big change we see right in the in the past, if we talk about a Chinese company go global, usually it will be exporting the products or it's a simple M&A effort to acquire assets. But now we see the sophistication level uh, rise up and the intangibles starting to take uh, importance, including the brand, uh, IT, uh, IP, and also technology exporting. Second thing, interesting enough also, we see many uh, leading companies going global start to build local ecosystems. So it's not uh, just uh, for the uh, for the company itself, it's actually it's uh, becoming a growth engine for the local. Some of those uh, examples we observe going to the Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, uh, the so-called China's plus one. In the past, uh, we always thinking, okay, our clients were being pushed to go out, but actually they are more proactively considering themselves as a potential leader going there and co-building the local ecosystem and uh, support the local industry to grow. So I think that's uh, all a great sign for us to be embedded into the global um, industry and also support uh, uh, to be part of the uh, more, uh, I would say, positive loop of the uh, international uh, intention. If I can add maybe an example, actually, uh, on tech, my own sector focus is life science, which is, you know, pharma, medtech, biotech. We actually see now a large number of deals happening between multinationals and Chinese biotech company, whereby multinationals license technology molecules developed in China to bring them to the rest of the world. So even on a topic like biotech, China is actually emerging as a tech exporter pretty rapidly, actually. So it sounds like a pretty dynamic business landscape. What then is behind the change in sentiment on China among multinationals? Joe's touched on some of the challenges, but maybe Jonah, you could elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, thank you, Sean. I think indeed, um, there is a keyword constantly being mentioned uh, recently, is the China entering into so-called the resilient era, right? The reason we say it's a resilient era, the fact that we are facing both internal challenges and also external, as you said, the sentiment has changed. That's an unavoidable uh, reality we need to face. Comparing 10 years ago, uh, the general public's attitude towards China has changed quite a lot. This is a, a research done by an institution called Pew. They basically ask people across the globe, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view towards China? And the uh, most recent year, <laughs> the unfavorable voices occupies majority. And uh, more surprisingly, if you dig out, like, who are the, those countries, like, those general public ha have uh, unfavorable views? Actually, the usual answer we will think about, like US, is actually not on the top more Asian countries and European countries just on the top, right? What does it mean? As we, uh, Joe also shared, we have a quite a good inter-regional uh, uh, trading and also many companies uh, coming to China originally from Europe and similarly, China is actively looking into, you know, uh, going global, uh, which Europe and Southeast Asia would be the hot destination. But uh, think about it, all the general public doesn't hold such a, a positive view towards China. I think that linking to the personal experience, uh, actually last year, I spent quite a bit of time in France, in US, in Middle East. I, I still feel very welcomed by, as a Chinese, but the topic people mention for discussion when regarding China, 
change it quite a lot, right? I think that's that's very um, uh, quite a bit of the change. If you think about a few years ago, and everyone was asking, "What's the opportunity in China? How to come in China?" So that's one observation. The second observation regarding for the uh, our clients' activity, as I mentioned, the many of the Chinese companies still looking for the opportunity to go to globe for supply chain, for a uh, potential uh, brand acquisition, and also for uh, collaboration. But the recent activity we observe more challenging is from the local regulatory environment and navigation, from the local work council and employees' attitude towards Chinese company. So I think that's uh, the same for any MNCs wanted to come to China. The reality in China has been changed. Thanks, Juna. So let's switch gears just a little bit. Aside from navigating the regulatory environment, what are some of the other challenges that companies are now facing when they're looking to enter China for the first time? For any uh, enterprise wanted to play in China, the two very important elements, one is talents, second is capital. Right? So I think the, the first topic about the talents, the, the fundamental, I would say, growth drive in China in the past is the fact that China has been a very big uh, market. And as Joe said, it still would be. But the other advantage, the relatively low cost of the talents, that advantage, we are losing it. And uh, also, Shell, I think uh, the other dimension maybe would be more challenging in terms of the potential risk is actually the uh, aging population. So I, again, last year, I think uh, for uh, statistically speaking, in China population, the uh, anyone more than 65 occupies almost 15% of the total population. And that number would actually double <laughs> yeah, when it reached 2050. So that brings China almost to a point that overall dependency ratio would get closer to Europe. It means less labor in the society. It means more burden for the family and also less possible, you know, uh, consumption uh, power per household. Okay, so that's a, that's a more big issue or risk, I would say, uh, imposing on the China side. Thanks, Juna. So how did those demographic trends look in terms of the male-female balance in Chinese businesses? Um, as you know, at McKinsey, we've done a lot of work on women in the workplace, and we're just wondering, how are women faring in Chinese workplaces? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And actually, I want to first proud to say, if you look at the graduation ratio of female versus male, and also look at the red to the entry level of the working force, female occupies more than 50%. And I, I think there are multiple reasons for that in the history. Uh, I think from a, a overall policy wise, it's a very favorable for the female to go to the college and uh, get into workplace. I think challenges surface when uh, uh, climb the ladder for the middle management and also senior women leaders. That is uh, indeed a challenge, but I'll also say that's the same thing for many of those countries and regions for the rest of the world. And second, the thing regarding that point is uh, potentially would be the imbalance among different industries. And, and Frank should be very proud that uh, in the life science domain, many leaders uh, are actually uh, female leaders. We just did a survey and also research for the female leader in China. Uh, I would say more female leader in life science than male. So, uh, yeah, it, it's really a uh, difference. Yes. Actually, just to give you a, a, a quick anecdote on this, 10 years ago, if you took the China president of the top 20 multinationals in pharmaceuticals, 
two out of 20 were females. Today, a majority are females. All right, so that's been a massive shift. And if you go down the organization at BU level, and you see a lot of females coming up. So there's clearly, and that's a big advantage China has, by the way, compared to, let's say, Japan, where there's still, or Korea, where we still have a lot of uh, inequalities there, right, between the uh, number of male and, and female senior leaders. Indeed. Very interesting. Thank you both. Uh, Joe talked earlier about increasing urbanization in China. Presumably, that would correspond with an increase in cost of living. How does that combine with or affect some of the other demographic trends that you described? Juna, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I think uh, I will answer this question from two angles. One is, averagely speaking, it is that averagely speaking, the dependence ratio is rising. But uh, then the, the other angle you look at is the structural. China is so big, and it is so big, cannot be measured by the normal uh, term like a tier one, tier two, tier three. It is a really cluster way of uh, developing. So if you look at uh, some hub cities, indeed, the way the cost of living is rising, but the, the wage level is also high. For those cities, relatively, I would say, no matter the availability of the talents and also the overall consumption power, everything is still on the relatively healthy side. But then if you look down on um, some middle part of the city, which relatively lack of the local economy uh, growth power, then that would be a big issue. And then if you look at the birth rate, it's also interesting discrepancy there. For those families tends to have uh, children, it's actually from relatively small towns or relatively lower tier cities. But for the mega cities, there is a tendency for the young generation, uh, even for the Gen Z, when you ask them, right, do you want to get married and have kids? <laughs> Most likely the answer you will get is either I don't know or I don't want it. So uh, that is associated with the fact of the rising cost of the living and also overall cost to raising the family. China is not that different from other countries in the world, right? I mean, uh, declining birth rate uh, seen everywhere. I think Korea reached a record low. We have to expect that this is going to continue trend going forward. It is starting to have an impact on the economy, by the way. So in healthcare, right, the, the big sector that is just focused on new babies and, you know, the young kids, that sector, whether it's infant nutrition and other types of product, is actually starting to plateau and starting to decline. And it has, it has led to a consolidation of the industry in the past few years, with in particular some multinationals having to kind of throw the towel and leave actually the market, right? And, and Chinese companies controlling the market increasingly. So... I would just only add that the most interesting thing here is that China is going from a single child, right, into a multi-children uh, household. So, you know, you see a generation of single child raised adults who are now having multiple children, right? So I think it's quite interesting, more from like a social experiment perspective. Um, but I think that, you know, it's, it's truly fascinating. And that is a little bit as China becomes like the rest of the world in terms of the balance of region and all that, right? It's fascinating to see some of the fabric of society, how you go through a generation, right, of that policy into now the encouragement of, you know, two children, three children families. Indeed. Uh, thank you all. This is really a, a very interesting demographic dynamic that we're discussing. And I wonder how is the availability of capital changing? Um, are there challenges around that as well? Yeah. There is a big risk we see in China regarding the debt to GDP ratio. 
think last year, the total debt to GDP ratio in China is 273%, right? And of course, larger proportion of that is a corporate debt, which is normal, right? For the company to grow, they will definitely leverage. Um, but the, the other two parts are more, um, I would say, alerting. Uh, one is for the household debt. And this household debt, uh, people always question, right? Is the Chinese, of course, everyone knows like Chinese people like to buy stuff <laughs> from the luxury consumption across different regions. You can already observe that phenomenon. But more importantly, among this household debt, almost half are actually linking with the real estate. And the rising real estate price is also driving up people's uh, intention to uh, borrow more, right? So this is one big part. And the second thing also, you not unique, but uh, also an area I would say call for attention is the government debt. Similarly, I think in the past, China's economy is largely supported by investment, infrastructure investment, and the local industry park uh, built up, right? This is an approach that supported many in, uh, industries and companies to grow, but also leave some legacy on the local debt, uh, both on the government side, but also on the SOE's book. Linking with that, there's another um, phenomenon I think uh, worth to, to uh, pay attention to is for the um, real estate uh, industry, you might al already heard about it. Uh, last uh, couple years back, uh, Chinese uh, regulatory start to put red lines on top to assess and measure the company's risk. Uh, basically, to avoid breaching the red line, a company must have a liability to asset ratio of less than 0 0.7, a net generating ratio of less than 1, and also a cash to short term debt ratio of more than 1. So, from 2020 towards 2022, the image is not getting better, right? So this is uh, all adding together. I think that the implication for any enterprise want to play in China is really the cost of the capital and the potential shortage of that. So both the risks and some of the opportunities have changed in recent years. And how is all this affecting multinationals' existing operations in China? And what can they expect in the future? First, let me, let me say that, you know, I've been in China for 18 years and probably the last 12 months and the next few years are going to be some of the most exciting times actually to be in China and to work with multinationals to figure out what to do in China. Uh, we say the ground is shifting. The ground is shifting because of multiple factors. I will come to them. But uh, the first first data I wanted to share is, is the fact that, yes, multinationals have been successful in China. But if you look at it, you know, um, from multiple indicators, the share of multinational in the total Chinese economy has actually been declining. Why? Because incredibly successful Chinese companies have emerged in every sector, pretty much. And this phenomena has been visible to some extent, but also partly hidden. And in that aspect, the three years we had of COVID was a factor that made it more difficult for multinationals to really understand what was going on in their industry and which local companies were really coming up. The Chinese companies have used a period of time to make tremendous progress across a range of sectors. Now, as a result, foreign companies account for a lower share of the total uh, Chinese economy that they did back in 2010 or 2015, which is a bit counterintuitive because, again, all those companies, multinationals, many of them in luxury, in automobile, in, in life science, have been enjoying very, very solid growth in China. So keep in mind this. Yes, multinationals have been successful, but local companies have been even more successful. The interesting factor we see as well 
And we think that COVID had an impact on that. And we look back at how companies, those are all Fortune 500 companies, right, disclosing their performance in China. Uh, we have looked at the data and came to the conclusion that basically the high performing companies are increasingly high performing ones and the low performing companies are increasingly low performing companies. And that what tells us is that multinationals who have invested at the right level in the past, who have gained the type of scale that you need to have in China to be competitive, who have the ability through their name to attract the right talent, have built the proper talent bench, have a huge competitive advantage now to continue to be successful in China. On the other hand, the multinationals who never treated China as a real priority or were more ambiguous about it, have not been able to crack the code, not able to get to the scale you need to be competitive, are struggling more and more, right? And probably have pretty difficult decisions ahead of them because to become competitive again could be very expensive, both in terms of capex, but also investment in people, uh, processes, etc., to potentially, potentially try to close the gap that exists today in performance. Another eye-opening uh, fact, I think, is how much uh, local companies have invested and are invested in R&D. You know, we used to think of Chinese companies as you know, low-cost manufacturing, maybe doing copycat of multinational products. That was true at a certain point of time, maybe true still for some companies. But across all sectors, from automobile to technology, life science, consumer goods, Chinese companies are plowing more and more of their resources into R&D. Right. So if I take, for example, life science, my uh, industry closest to my heart, I guess, you can see that the growth rate of local Chinese company R&D spend is at 36% per year for the last four years, when it's only 8% for multinationals. Now, in terms of absolute value, and even uh, as a percentage of total sales, the multinationals are still spending more, 14% for multinationals, 7% for local companies. But if you, if you fast forward those trends, three years, five years, 10 years, it's likely that local Chinese companies will be outspending multinationals across a range of sectors on R&D. And to me, that's one of the fascinating parts of the China story at this point. The China story used to be for multinational largely about selling into the China market or importing from manufacturing. Now there's a huge innovation and R&D story that makes the whole picture more complex, more exciting, but also potentially more threatening because innovation from Chinese companies will not stay in China. It will go to global markets. At the same time, if I'm a multinational and I can really tap into this innovation engine in China, I can actually impact my global market as well in a very positive way. So two faces of a coin, if you wish, on this topic as well. That's fascinating. And what impact is government regulation having on some of these shifts, Frank? And and how, if at all, has the regulatory landscape evolved? The Common Prosperity Agenda, which is uh, promoted by the central government, really coming up from the realization that inequalities in the Chinese population has just reached a level that was not sustainable going forward. Uh, government is taking action to limit this. So, for example, in healthcare, we have seen a lot of policies uh, leading to price pressure on, on drugs that are being reimbursed, for example, but also uh, lower pricing for uh, medical technology products for surgery, for example, right? So that more Chinese people can actually access healthcare at a reasonable cost in the eyes of the Chinese government, right? We also see a lot of policy changes on data and technology, a particularly sensitive topic where we see new regulation 
by the way, happening in the rest of the world as well around data security, about cybersecurity, and what type of information can actually be hosted in China and what information can be taken out of China, particularly an important topic to understand so that companies can operate within the boundaries of what's acceptable for China. But also, interestingly, a range of sectors in China are actually more open today than they were five years ago. There are actually sectors where today you can operate as a multinational in China as a wholly owned subsidiary of your global headquarter company. In the past, you had to have a Chinese partner. That's no longer the case systematically. There are still sectors where you need a Chinese partner or even sectors that may be entirely close to multinational. But actually, a large number of sectors have opened up as well in the past, uh, in the past few years. Thank you, Frank. Uh, with the emergence of all these innovative Chinese companies and their increasing dominance in some sectors, are you seeing that Chinese employees are now showing a preference to work for the local Chinese companies rather than multinationals? And does that make talent recruitment and retention another challenge that multinationals now need to face in China? It's a fantastic uh, question, uh, Sean, and it's uh, at, at the heart of everything that happens in China, right? I mean, the the truth, I believe, is that um, the value proposition of multinationals in China has eroded. It used to be very compelling because you could get the best uh, training ground. You had opportunities to go abroad to the US or Europe. You know, there was a lot of emphasis on people development. Often the companies were actually at the leading edge of their industry, right? And that age has eroded. Again, now, uh, if you think, for example, about the automobile industry, the Chinese companies in EV are leading on probably all aspects of, of new new car development, right? Whether it's design or technology. So if I'm a young Chinese engineer, do I really want to work for a multinational as part of a JV, or do I want to work for a startup in EV, Chinese one, that is actually going to have potentially a bright future? In the pharmaceutical industry, do I want to work for... Uh, multinational, but great, a great name, great drugs, great processes, but also a bit slow, maybe, right, in terms of operating model. Or do I want to join one of the emerging Chinese biotech company who is trying to change the way people access medicine? Uh, the value proposition of local companies have gone up uh, tremendously at the same time as the multinational one uh, got eroded a little bit. So uh, COVID here also did not help. Because for a period of time, there was great isolation for multinational, right? Uh, many of the employees of multinationals were hired during COVID that never had exposure to their global colleagues. It's starting to change. China is reopening. We've seen a large number of CEOs and their team to come to China in the past uh, few months, and this will continue. But still, some of the bridges between headquarters and local teams have been damaged by the, the isolation of COVID. I'm sure Lou or, or, or Jenna would have some additional thoughts. Well, look, I, mean, I, think, I think one of the fascinating things here is I think that we talk about Chinese and multinationals as if they were two very discreet animals. I think over the last 20 years, like what has become a lot more explicit now is that are you an innovative company? Are you an agile company? Are you putting more you know, you know, capital to work in R&D, right? So if you are those, whether you're multinational or Chinese companies, you will attract talent. But it's no longer because, you know, we have an international brand or whatever, I'm going to try talent. That is no longer going to be your trump card, right? So I do think that the land is shifting, but it's shifting because of competition, right? And this competition between Chinese and Chinese and multinational and multinationals, right? And it's not so clear, Sean, that it's just multinationals versus Chinese, because I think that it's a lot more nuanced than that. 
Yeah, just building on that, one, one quick note. I think it is a time to take take off the uh, so-called tag of MNC uh, for a bit, right? Uh, from the talent's angle, I just happened to talk to some friends who work in the multinational company and got an offer also from the local company. Eventually, she decided to stay. And when I asked her, like, why, why is the decision? He never mentioned it's like MNC versus a private company. She talked about overall culture. She talked about overall platform and also about how the overall team is like. So I think it's less about you know, MNC versus local is really goes to the foundation, right? Well, the foundation, what do you offer to the talents? Awesome. This is really interesting. And I, so now I wonder, how should our listeners be thinking about reconfiguring their China strategies in light of all these shifts? What advice do you have for immediate next steps? Sure, sure. And on the one hand, you could think of it as having two dimensions. The first one that company need to really think through is what is their value at stake in China? And the value at stake takes many forms. It could be my profit in China. It could be my revenue in China. It could be my growth coming from China because growth for many companies is a big driver of market capitalization. So it has a huge influence on on multiples and and just value of a company. Uh, It could also be what part of my sourcing comes from China, right? What competitive advantage do I have on manufacturing and supply chain by having a Chinese base? It could be the partnership that I I forge in China to source innovation for the the globe. I mentioned earlier examples in biotech, right? So what is the value at stake in China? Is having exposure to China positive to my equity story or a negative? In some sectors, maybe uh, being seen as having too much exposure to China could be seen as a risk that investors are not willing to take. So for any company in its sector, it's very important to have a view on the value at stake in China. That value at stake needs to be well understood by the executive team and aligned, right? And then the alignment is not always easy to, to, to drive. It needs to be understood by the board as well, by the way. The board of directors are increasingly asking questions about why we in China, what's the value there? Right. So getting to that is very important. And then, as importantly, there's a need to align on the aspiration for China. And that aspiration has to be driven by alternative options that companies have. In some cases, China is the next China. It's the growth engine of the industry globally, in automobile, for example, in chemicals, in consumer goods, in some parts of life science, not all parts, but some parts of it, right? So, you know, what is my aspiration? If I want to be a global winner in the world, I cannot not win in China. That's the answer for some companies. For some, it will be, I can have a high aspiration in China, but I have alternative markets where I can invest more and maybe start to uh, reassess my resource allocation framework. So having this alignment for companies, right, at company level or BU level, by the way, is, is super important. And then based on that, I think companies fall into four big categories, the renewed commitment to double down, right? China is important and China will become even more important. And as a company, I believe as a CEO, I believe I can win in China, despite the changes in competitive dynamics and regulation. Some will decide to diversify. Some of the business, I still have a high confidence I can win and invest, but part of the business, maybe I'm not as confident, I will start to take chips off the table. Some companies who actually had so far moderate value or low value in China still have a big opportunity because they have a differentiated product, a differentiated technology, maybe a different way of going to market that gives them an opportunity, even if they start from a low base, to actually put more money in China and drive a very successful business. We still have cases like that. And then you have a large number of companies across sectors who who are reducing stakes, right? 
And this can take different forms from just you know, giving the business to a Chinese partner to uh, closing shop in some cases, um, or just you know, taking investment down to a level where you cannot really be competitive anymore and you just manage your exit uh, through, through, uh, through that. Um, so this this metrics is is playing out right now as we speak because quite frankly this reassessment of a China strategy is a pretty new topic, you know. I mean, obviously people have been thinking about their China strategy forever, but the fundamental review of the balance of opportunity and growth versus risk, this is happening as we speak right now. These are very big decisions, and for those that decide to continue betting on China. What would you recommend they do to increase their chances of success? I, I know you did some research on that, Frank. Yeah, we think the premise for that is we, we believe that fundamentally for a multinational who has a high ambition to still be successful in China, there's a big push to make on localization, localization of the business model, localization of the tech and technology data, localization of the value proposition for talent maybe localization as well of access to capital sources, right? So on technology and data, there's actually no option. There is a need to localize to just continue to participate in the market. But for example, on capital and ownership, we see some companies taking more control of their capital structure in China and buying out their JD partner, for example. And we also see some, com some companies who say, you know what, maybe I should actually bring Chinese investors in my capital to help me on my expansion strategy, maybe minimize the need for me to bring capital from outside China, right? So again, no particular uh, right or wrong answer, but a range of dimensions and uh, options that company need to think through, again, aligned with their aspiration and value at stake in China. Great. Thank you. It's a final question, and I'll come back to Joe for this one. What are you most excited about in terms of the future in China? Sean, I've been um, here in China since January, and at the airport every day, there are many, many of my friends globally who are coming to China for the first time in three years. And every plane comes in with very tentative, try to see what's happening, right? And every plane leaves with people who are more, I would say, convinced about the opportunity and more thoughtful about the risk. And I think that's the way how I would describe it, right? I think that people see this economy coming back, who will see the bridge is being built again, right? And you cannot but feel very excited when you see the dynamism and the long things that's happening here on the ground. On the other hand, the world has changed and you cannot not look at the papers and understand that, hey, you know, as executives right now, we have a, a mission and an and a, and a accountability for what we do here. The imperative of kind of making the right decision in China right now is very high. And I think, Sean, that's going to be that the task ahead for everyone. It's with excitement, but with also care and thoughtfulness that we need to navigate these waters. That is a fantastic way to conclude our podcast show. Thank you so much. And thank you also to Juna and Frank for joining us as well. And for those of you interested in reading more, a reminder that we've placed a link to the report that formed the basis of the discussion in the show notes. It's titled The China Imperative for Multinational Companies, and you'll also find it on McKinsey.com. As always, a big thank you to you, all of our listeners, for joining us today. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, we encourage you to email us at itsr at mckinsey.com, and that stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on any podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already shared their thoughts. We really appreciate all your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. 
We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available on mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And there you can actually browse our prior podcasts organized across six major themes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF for strategy and corporate finance. Or you can follow us on Twitter or X at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.